Hey everyone and welcome to this latest edition of the Digital Project Manager podcast. So today with me I have Natalie and uh, I'm very excited to do the first of our uh, podcast that we're going to be doing uh, where we're going to be talking to the people who've actually written some of the content and the articles on the site and uh, Natalie just recently published an article with us on the Digital Project Manager about project management hacks, and everybody loves uh, hacks. Um, we we uh, we published an article a while ago about Slack hacks that was massively popular, and uh, but Natalie has created a list of ten different hacks uh, that she's been kind of using over the years as a digital project manager, and uh, they range from the very practical uh, to perhaps the more philosophical. And, uh, and more just around how we approach project management. But uh, we're going to discuss that today. But first, let me allow Natalie to introduce herself. Natalie, why don't you just give us a bit of an overview on who you are and the kind of projects you do and, and all about you. Sure. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a freelance uh, digital project manager. I mostly work remotely with uh, smaller to medium-sized firms, typically uh, web design and development, sometimes apps. Uh, and I work with teams to help them, you know, achieve success on their projects. I work with project clients and I also consult on operational processes and making your remote team even better. Cool. And so what kind of, Johnny, just give us a quick overview on perhaps some of the projects you've been working on recently, if you can, if you can talk <laughs> about those. Uh, what kind of projects, what kind of digital project management do you do? Is it more strategic or is it campaign stuff, uh, marketing campaigns or site builds? What kind of what kind of flavor of DPM is it? It's more usually site builds or um, deeper uh, web development, things like that. Right now I'm working um, on two active projects. One is a, a small elementary school, a private school, and they're upgrading a lot of their backend systems, so how they classify and sort students, things like that. And I'm overseeing the project management, um, the development work, and rebuilding an integration that pulls all of that student data from existing systems and puts it into a pretty custom solution uh, of a, a website where teachers can log in and see their students, and parents can also log in and see their students' progress throughout the year. Um, I'm also working on sort of a straightforward website design and, and rebuild or a build in general for a small startup um, based out of San Francisco with some exciting products coming along. I don't think that I can talk more about that, but it's it's one of those typical design development phases, a little strategy thrown in. Um, but it's been a lot of fun so far. Cool. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so let's um, deep dive into your 10 hacks. We probably aren't going to... Uh, go into each one of them in, in a lot of detail, but uh, first, like perhaps give us give us a, uh, an overview on your how you kind of came up with these because we've got some that are like I said quite executional and practical, and some that are, seem to kind of be more philosophical about the way that we should PM. So, was there any uh, how how did you come to these hacks? Uh, I guess it's a mix of seeing what other PMs have done that I've worked with that I think work really well for them and just experience. Um, A lot of it comes from working remotely where you have a little, both a little more and a little less control over your surroundings, um, less control over your team that you work with, more control over your personal environment. And I think 
as DPMs, we all use a lot of tools and we communicate all the time. Mm. Um, you know, that's a huge part of our job. Yeah. And it can be very easy to forget about the details of refining those tools and communications to work well for us so that we're spending less time on on the repetitive, boring stuff and spending more time on what we need to spend time on. Cool. So that's a nice segue into hack number one, automating your project management tools as, as much as possible. So can you tell us, I mean, you in your article, and if you haven't checked out the article, go to the digitalprojectmanager.com and uh, you'll find uh, the project management hacks article there at the homepage at the moment. Uh, but tell us briefly a bit more about the, the PM tools that you like to use and how you've come to choosing those tools. Sure. I use a variety of tools depending on the, the company I'm working with. Um, almost always Slack, uh, Gmail or Google product suites um, for project management tools themselves. I've used Basecamp 3 a lot, Trello, and um, a, a kind of interesting mix of the two. It's a tool called breeze.pm. Um, but, but those kinds of typical workflow tools um, and a lot of you know Slack and Google and those programs. Yeah, yeah, cool. And so, in your um, the kind of auto, some of the automations that you were talking about in your article, um, it seems like you've you've kind of set things up so that when people do certain things or uh, certain things happens, then you get notifications and um, magic happens. So, does it does it require your team to kind of? all get on the same page and work in the same way. Have you, have you managed to kind of coerce your team into, into make, to making this work out for you? Um, most of the time, yes. Some of, some of the hacks are sort of controllable on my end. You know, they're for my benefit, things like notifications. Um, and the tools I use, like how I receive those, if they're a weekly digest or, you know, real time, things like that. But then integrations between tools, like say... Um, like uh, GitHub and Slack or Trello and Slack require my team to follow a certain sort of process just in that they're using those tools, um, yeah. which is, I think, pretty easy even to get the most wild west of teams into, you know, committing to a repository or something. So it's yeah. definitely beneficial um, to have those integrations set up regardless of the sort of process that's followed, I think. Yeah. Cool. And is there, if there was, if people were to do just one, um, yeah, automation, what's the one, the single automation that you find that you thank yourself for um, <laughs> every day as you, you enjoy seeing it do some of its magic? Um, I think the, the best for me is I use Slack as a chat tool with almost every team. So integrating the project management tool I'm using on a project into a Slack channel is so helpful because it'll give me information. Like if someone's updating a task assigned to them, if they flag an issue and have a certain marker on that task or move the task to a completed um, column, that gives me immediate insight into um, what's being done. I don't need to log into another program to see it. I don't need to check my email. So I think that kind of integration is the um, easiest automation to have. Um, that being said, if you don't use tools like that, I love uh, I love sending digests of information to my email because it's just having that one true place to look at a quick overview of everything going on without having to go into like six different programs to check the status of something. Great stuff. 
And is there any, any times that your automations have catastrophically failed and, uh, and you've ended up with a disaster because something didn't happen that was supposed to? Yes, I think it could go <laughs> both ways where integrations like that fail for whatever yeah. reason. Something's updated and I just don't realize it until too late. Or the opposite where the integration works so well, you're being slammed with notifications in that one place you put them, um, which definitely isn't ideal. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. So let's move on to number two. Um, and it's, it's user racy matrix on every project you manage. So for the uninitiated on races, tell us a bit about, about those and why you like them. Yeah, I have to admit, I use them a little untraditionally on my projects. Um, but the basic idea is to give a like insight into all of the um, responsibilities, roles, ownerships on a project and make it very clear which um, person on a project or which team is expected to interact in a certain way on a project and make decisions. Um, So a lot of people make these at kickoff. I think it's a really great way to be clear. For example, the project client is um, in charge of deciding with their team, um, you know, what kind of content we're moving forward with, but at the same time, we need to have insight on our team between specific departments um, into that. So it's basically designating those different responsibilities between the parties involved on a project. Cool. And yeah, and then I know in the article you uh, put, put an example in there of a racy, but when it comes down to it, how do you get to that decision making? Uh, or tell me about your decision-making process where you say, where you get to decide, well, who goes in what column, who is consulted, who is the person that's just informed, mm-hmm. what does being informed mean, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what does accountable mean? Like, how, how do you get to that point of deciding, okay, you're Mr. Responsible and you're just informed? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's a mix depending on the project. So, uh, I will usually go with a precedent or a process um, for the higher level portions of a project. So going between different phases or milestones, um, you know, there's usually a typical process in agencies where, you know, um, the client will be involved at a certain point, you know, that design or development will be involved at a certain point. So picking out those high level people involved and, um, and kind of going along with what you already know is the process. Um, I think there's a fine line though, where you need to dictate it as a PM. If the project is somewhat complex or has many stakeholders or, um, also get buy-in if your team is more collaborative and you all decide together, these are the people who are informed. These are the people who are responsible. Um, and then of course you can always have overlap. It just is much more useful to designate specifically which person fits in which place. Yeah, definitely. And so, and one of the things that I think is um, often challenging on a race is knowing how much detail to go into. So Mm -hmm. uh, to what extent do you break it down? Do you break it down by phases? Do you break it down by tasks? Are you breaking it down by deliverables? How do you, how do you go about making that decision and what kind of detail do you like to go into? On smaller projects, I definitely like to do it based on, um, on, I guess, phases or um, end, end large deliverable on bigger projects, which is either more complex or 
longer term or more people, you know, the, the word big can kind of describe many things on that. Um, I like to break it down more granularly, but mm. I also like the idea of using a racy matrix for things that people don't typically think about, like what the content workflow or update workflow will look like after launch, because that really helps your client or your stakeholders understand the amount of work or the amount of people involved in committing to that and thinking it through. So it really gets everyone on the same page and really manages those expectations in general to use a racy matrix on a project. Good stuff. So let's hit number three. Say hi to your team and co-workers daily. So uh, it, it's that, and, and uh, on the face of it, this sounds like, how, what, you're, you're not saying hi to them? But, um, but yeah, how do you work this, how do, how do you kind of see this, you know, working remotely versus in an office? And uh, like, I mean, you've mentioned it a few times that, you know, you spend a lot of your time using Slack as a tool. So do, do you find, I mean, one of the things I found is that um, <laughs> Slack is a brilliant tool and I love it, but I also find that, uh, we can end up with teams who are working together on the same pod, who are typing to each other, uh, even though they're sat right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, how do you, uh, yeah, how do you bridge that gap between the kind of virtual communication and the the in-person communication, and uh, and bring this to life? Yeah, there's definitely a balance to be struck. Um... You know, it's difficult to say what amount of like person to person interaction is best for a team. And obviously working remotely, that's more of a forced interaction. If you're getting onto a call or video call or something like that, you're Mm -hmm. not seeing that every day. But I think it's just so helpful to gain that rapport with people and um, let them know that, you know, they're still there. So I kind of like to switch it up. Um, I will ping members of my team. either individually to ask them a particular question or see if they have a blocker or just ask how they are, or I'll kind of at, um, well, I don't at mention the channel. I feel like that's a bad practice, but in general, I'll post to the channel. Um, <laughs> like, you, know, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, um, um, just mention to the kind of the project group as a whole, like, Hey, like, how is everyone, you know, how are you doing any issues? Um, I just think it's so great to have that interaction in a much more casual way and not always have an end goal in mind and like obtaining information or obtaining a status or clarifying something. And it gets people to loosen up a little bit. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, so next up, number four is learn to say no on a project gracefully, but firmly. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, saying no is definitely something I struggled with. Uh, as a younger PM, and it's it's hard to do, I think, when you're generally people facing and nice. But um, I, <laughs> generally, yeah, generally, I see it as something to do to protect myself and protect my team and protect the project. Um, I think it's really important that we learn when the appropriate times to say no or to push back are, whether that's scope change, which is obviously something we're all familiar with, or protecting time on a pro- project. Um, clarifying things so there isn't like an immediate reaction um, with a client who's asking for more that is, you know, maybe it's not the best choice, but maybe they actually mean something else. So being able to push back and say no in some way in whatever form um, to requests that will cause stress or time issues or budget issues is really important to learn and to also understand like when those times come like 
what is the best way to handle it. Yeah. So, so how, so talk us through a, a scenario where, when you had to say no and kind of how you go about saying no in a way that maintains, uh, keeps, keeps everyone happy as much as you can. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think a kind of like a trick to this, um, mm. is that no, isn't always like straight, straight out. Yeah. No, but, um, very recently this week, actually, I was working with a team where our sprint, I was, uh, we're working in sprints and, our sprint cadence has gotten thrown off. So we had to shift all of our uh, demo meetings and retrospectives and planning. And um, it was actually a team member I had to say no to. He uh, he and I got into a discussion about whether, um, whether the timing of a certain meeting mattered uh, between two days. And I was pushing to not, not have major meetings on Mondays. I think that's a, a messy day to have meetings. Um, and, you know, everyone's getting back from the weekend and needs to settle in. And he was adamant that that Monday would be the best day. And I just had to say, listen, I understand, you know, this is a 10 person team, you're one person, and I don't think this will negatively affect you. But I totally understand your concern. It's just that this has to happen on Tuesday. Um, I will reconsider if it doesn't seem to work for the next few weeks. But in my opinion, that's the best judgment. And we need to move forward with that. Um, so that we can continue on with our days. So it was it was a soft no, and I've considered it. And um, you know, I I know best for the team in this particular situation. But it was important to recognize that furthering that discussion was not going to work for either of us. Yeah, fun but fair. Yes, I try. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I guess yeah, saying no, saying no to your team. Uh, sometimes we, we, we have a, well, as a project manager, we do have a mandate to be able to say to our team, Hey, this is, these are the kind of the ground rules, uh, that we are going to, and the parameters that we're going to work within. But in terms of, uh, of saying no to a client, so I know a, a kind of typical scenarios for, for when you might need to say no that you, that you mentioned are things like when a client is trying to increase the scope or when they're trying to, um, yeah, gold plate something yes. when when they're trying to bring forward the deadline, uh, when they're trying to cut costs in some way. So, what are what are the what are the kind of techniques that you might employ when when tackling that with a client? When you're trying mm-hmm. to maintain the relationship, you're trying to keep the keep the client keep keep the project on track. Um, how do you deal with those kind of sensitivities? I try really hard to redirect and just understand where they're coming from. So um, I think I mentioned this too in the article, uh, education goes a long way. So in the case where they're moving a a deadline up, for example, I think it's really important for me to explain not only the trade-offs of moving a deadline up. So for example, the cost might increase significantly, features might be significantly cut, um, quality might not be the same. And then also pointing out where that line is. So I'm obviously say, going to say no. I've, I've identified I'm going to say no, explaining why that is. So for example, we cannot move the deadline up that far because it'll compromise the quality. And as a company, we don't, we don't work within, you know, we work, we, or we work within a certain amount of quality and we don't feel that this will fit that well. Um, or explaining, you know, with all of the things on our plate right now, we need to cut down functionality, but, the amount we would need to cut down to reach that deadline 
will actually make the website non-functional. So we can't hit that. Um, and being fairly firm about that, I don't like to leave a loophole or like a too big of an apology or something where it can be worked out that, oh, if we just do this, we can hit that. Um, so being, being firm, being educational, but also really understanding the repercussions of that decision. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is so important when we, when we are saying no, to be, to be really clear that we are saying no. I think one of the, one of the, one of the challenges that we can have sometimes is that we try to tell the client no, but, but we end up introducing like words like we don't think we will be able to, or we might not be able to hit the deadline, or I'm not mm-hmm. sure if we can include that. Um, and then when there's not that clarity of language, or, and even when there's not that follow-up afterwards where we're saying, just to confirm, we will not be able to hit the deadline that you've, <laughs> that you've right. uh, requested. So I, th- I think that kind of clear language around, around no is, is so important, but also that we, that we give options as well. I think we, as much as possible, we want to be empowering our clients, right, to be able mm-hmm. to make the right decision themselves rather than forcing them in a corner and, and making them feel like, oh, hold on, I just, I lost control. Like, clients want to know that they're in control. So mm-hmm. giving, them, giving them the choice, like, you know, you could, we, can, we can go for option A or option B. Option, option B will, will take longer and it will cost more money, but the quality will be better or you'll get what you want. But you've got, you've got some options here. I'm not just saying no. Uh, we, there, there's some options for you. And, uh, and giving them, giving them, giving them the, the, the feeling that they've got some choice, I think can can uh, can really help sometimes. Yeah, I totally agree. That's so great. So next up, um, yeah, treating your projects as, as learning opportunities. What have you been? Uh, what have you been learning recently? <laughs> I think I um, talked a little bit about um, uh, develop, learning more about development. Um, but I've been on a few development-heavy projects, and it's been great to uh, see something I don't fully understand and take the time to ask my team when they have the chance to to better explain that to me. And then the benefit of that is I understand it more from a project management perspective, um, and I can maybe share that with them if there's any overlap that would be interesting to them to learn. Or I can also educate the client a little more when I'm telling them about these things. Um, which I think is always important. And the other thing I really like, and I think this is why I'm drawn to project management, is I get to learn a lot about my clients' businesses and their thinking and their strategies. And it's clear on every project I've worked on, especially since I work on web development projects, that um, there's so much teaching and learning to do about the web for our clients um, and just understanding how they use websites, um, what, how they update websites, uh, what their major issues are when they access a website. It's, uh, kind of like, like baked in, um, user experience research and it's always definitely a learning opportunity, um, in those senses. I think projects are also a good time to try new techniques or to new communication patterns. Um, obviously not to an extreme, but in a way to slightly tweak what we've done before and see if that makes a difference too. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things you talked about in your article was, uh, as re- is retrospectives and, mm-hmm. um, using those as, as learning opportunities that you build from. So tell me about how you, how you use retrospectives with your team. I think 
I think one of the things that I found that can sometimes happen is, yes, like people will go through the, the process of having a retrospective, but how do you, how do you effectuate change um, as a result of a meeting? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even just the process of having a retrospective is so healthy for a team. Um, I've definitely been on projects where there's a ton of ranting and grumbling behind the scenes. And every time we've done that, it comes from a core issue on the project itself, whether that's the client, our process, um, you know, the project itself, how it was managed, how they were, um, you know, how my team was working on it, um, all of that. There's always something we learn from kind of random ranting and grumbling. So bringing that into a retrospective where you can not only reflect on the things that were difficult, but you can also reflect on the things that did work is so helpful to put it all out there because I don't think that's something that typically comes along, at least on the, on the team side of things, uh, naturally on a project. We don't typically say, Hey, this process was great. It worked so well for me. Um, and, and when we do find something not working, I think we tend to do that little grumbling or ranting or like get that frustration pent up in your head. So Getting it out there is helpful. I really like documenting sort of the key points and takeaways from um, all of the things said, like as we're talking. So since I'm remote, I typically will screen share and take notes as we're talking. Um, and, you know, this can be done with a whiteboard in person or something similar. And uh, I really like all agreeing on one or two things to improve moving forward, whether that's on the same project team, you know, if we're working together again or just having that at an elevated level where we're all aware of it, um, whether something is officially done from a process or PM or company standpoint or not, it really helps to have that awareness into what that issue is and what we want to improve moving forward. Great stuff. Cool. So next up, um, taking control of your notifications. I think this is, this is pretty <laughs> self-explanatory, but this is obviously uh, important enough for you to think that it's worth in- included. What are the kind of notifications that that you find most helpful and least helpful when you're kind of prioritizing? Okay, do I do I do I mute this or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in general, any kind of unread notification or like that red badge. I'm on a Mac, so I see those red badges a lot. Those really. Um, for me, stress me out. I always want to clear them out. I want to deal with them, address them, read them. But if I read them, I'll forget about them if I'm not dealing with them right away. So, um, so I will mute almost anything that gives me an unread notification that is not, um, directly related to my project or a direct message. Um, so I always leave my direct message notifications on just because since I'm working so closely with teams who are remote, I think it's really important that they can get a hold of me privately. Um, but yeah, I'll mute anything that is sort of idle chatter or, um, that is from a bot, depending on the tool. Sometimes you can automate that, or I mean, uh, sometimes you can change that preference. Um, I will also often apply filters and unread, um, message, uh, I guess filters in Gmail so that I don't always see immediately something that's unread, but like a digest of like what's happened on Basecamp that day. Or, um, if I know it's not from a client, I don't have to look at it and deal with it and delete it right away. Um, so just knowing what my kind of triggers to being reactive are and, and dealing with that has helped me a lot. Great stuff. Cool. And, um, the next one, which I think is a really interesting one is, um, educate as much as possible. And we, we kind of talked earlier about, um, the kind of 
team education and um, but tell me uh, a bit about just ways that you you find personally you're kind of learning and growing as a digital project manager at the moment that other people might be able to leverage yeah um I think when we so when i I know when I started and I know when I've talked to people who were junior it's um always reinforced like to uh, be clear about what you don't know. And I think that's actually one of the points in this article too, is like to be upfront about what you don't know and what you need to check yeah. on with your team on. But I don't think it's, I don't think it's always looked at as like a personal growth opportunity either. So when I know I don't understand something that my team is working on or, or talking about, you know, obviously there are, I'm not going to be an expert in everything. And I, that's why there's a team, a project team. They're, they're the ones doing the work and they know how to do it and they're experts. But if there's something that I am particularly curious about, or for example, that trips me up all the time, um, I think I use development and uh, DNS and hosting and server things mm. as an example in the article. Yeah. I'm typically the one on the client side describing what, what we need, like what kind of information we need from the client on that um, for DNS changes, and also describing to them what the issue is if we do have that kind of issue. So understanding what that looks like in the back end more and what those terms mean and how that all works together was really um, hugely helpful for me because it gave me context and a framework to talk about it with the client and was directly relevant to a lot of conversations that I was having. Cool. Any, um, any websites or blogs or things that, you're, things that you're reading at the moment that you, you're finding helpful? Um. I guess uh, I I honestly usually Google things, and well, I love listening to podcasts outside of um, outside of my particular area of yeah. focus. So, yeah. like design or content strategy podcasts are something I find interesting. Um, there are a lot of front end or back end podcasts out there, and just like tuning in once or twice um, when I have the time helps me feel more comfortable with like the terminology and and understand what's going on a little more too. Yeah, no, I think I think that is so important that as digital project managers, as we're as we're trying to lead a project, we're not just managing a project, we're we're leading it. And in order to lead effectively, we need to we need to know more than just about administering a project. And uh, and it's so key that we begin to develop expertise, not to the extent that we can actually execute. Although you know, there's nothing wrong with a cheeky bit of. Sketch, sketch changes every mm-hmm. now and again, but um, but it's so important that we understand strategy, UX, design, dev, QA, and the kind of the advancements that are going on uh, in those different disciplines, in order that we can ensure that our team are applying them to our projects, so that we can sound knowledgeable in front of our clients, um, and it also just it just gives us this ability to be able to lead our projects much more effectively when we've got a better idea about what people are doing or what they should be doing. So I think that's I think that's great. Um, one one of the other things we'll we'll skip to number uh, ten on your on your list, which is always know the numbers, uh, which I think is is so important. Tell us a bit about the numbers that are important to you on a project. Yeah, of course. Um, I think, uh, so I work with time and material based, um, teams mostly. So pulling time reports is really important. Um, not just to understand where the budget is going or how many hours are being put into work, but, um, I mean, I guess maybe I'm just a bit nosy, but I like to read the descriptions, um, on the time entries too, because I think it'll often show 
where there might be um, a blocker or um, not even an issue, but maybe more a point of learning or a point of collaboration I wasn't aware of. And it's nice to kind of understand that from the, I guess, the trail kind of left behind, um, especially since I'm not in an office. Again, I don't always see how people interact. So knowing how people are spending their time, um, and I do this without malicious intent, you know, not to judge, but more to understand what's going on, um, obviously to get budget-based numbers too. But I think it really gives you good insight into things, um, communication and work and and things going on um, on a project that you might be able to help in or you might be able to learn from and and help facilitate in the future. Um, So that's really important to me. I regularly check in on the project management tools I'm using to see if other conversations are going on. Um, A lot of times I'll work with tools where um, the client is invited in. So uh, I just kind of take a brief um, look to see, you know, if other people are are having a conversation, if I need to be involved, and then also to see how many tasks have been completed or might be blocked or stuck if we're working in a task-based manner. Um, I think understanding, like, resourcing for projects, so how many hours people are putting in per week or slotted to put in per week when their vacations are coming up are important. So so these are all kind of numbers-based, but they all feed into the larger budget, timeline, um, velocity kind of numbers going coming out of a project and all of the work going in yeah cool and so um but there was a, a comment on the on your post um someone said that they they're recently switching to a pm role from a, from an am role at a marketing agency and there isn't much structure around the role so they're wondering if you had any recommendations on how best to do reporting on hours budget excel spreadsheets tools that you would recommend how do you hmm. how do you do the kind of the nuts and bolts of of your reporting what what do you use for that i um work on most of the teams i've worked on use um harvest or time tracking tools like that where the team um puts in their time spent uh every every day or every project and I can pull reports from that. So I can pull um, daily, monthly, weekly reports. So I think um, the importance is kind of understanding how your team is allocating their hours and how they're tracking it and then building a system from there. Um, if I'm reporting to a client, there's a nice feature in Harvest, um, but I think in other tools as well where you can export to a CSV or an Excel spreadsheet or a Google Drive sheet, and I can kind of clean up the entries and summarize it if they need a detailed view. Um, otherwise, if it's like a report for a client or for my team, just pulling the numbers myself from wherever it's being tracked and um, and reporting on that either verbally or in an email um, can be helpful. Yeah. And how do you do and how do you kind of reconcile those numbers then? So obviously your your people are doing the work, they're logging hours against it. How do you actually know whether or not you're on track or not how how frequently you do those reconciliations against the estimate and um yeah how, how does that process work um i tend to do that mostly weekly if it's a really really busy week i'll check in multiple times a week um with whatever tool is being used um i've also i should mention i've also worked on projects that are not um time is not tracked against it that granularly it's more people are blocked off to work that full day and in those cases I will go and make sure um, in the tool that we use to allocate people's days um, 
I'll make sure that's accurate for what people worked that week um, based on like what I hear from the PM report that week. So I to reconcile hours in general, I'll pull a report um, weekly or semi-weekly if it's busy and um, make sure all time is in and just check that against the estimate or whatever we're working against the budget and make sure I'm also taking a look at how much might be um, allocated towards internal time or education or learning, which isn't that frequent, but it comes up. So just getting sort of a week to week look, and that's typically how frequently I update my clients as well on their projects. So it gives me a good sense of how far along we are. And generally that doesn't fluctuate too wildly if I'm only looking weekly. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, thanks so much, uh, Natalie, for joining us. I think uh, that's been really helpful in just helping us understand a bit more about uh, the way you work and some of these uh, hacks that you've pulled together uh, so that uh, we can all learn from them too. And just to say, uh, if you're listening to the podcast and you'd like to contribute to the conversation, uh, we'd love it if you could uh, share your thoughts as comments on the on Natalie's post on the digitalprojectmanager.com. Uh, but we've also got a Slack uh, team. So if you uh, click on the community um, uh, navigation item at the, on the Digital Project Manager site, uh, you can sign up to join us on Slack and continue the conversation there as well. But thanks, Natalie, for joining us. And we look forward to uh, having another uh, podcast again with you soon. So great to have you with us. Thank you so much.